0: Welcome to this week's Who the Folk podcast. I'm Lonnie Goldsmith, the editor of TC Jew Folk. This week I got the opportunity to talk with Leah Persky, the Family Life Education Program Manager at Jewish Family and Children's Services of Minneapolis. We talk about her departure from academia, settling in the Twin Cities, and we spend a lot of time talking about the upcoming Mental Health Education Conference on October 21st at Temple Israel. This year will be the 18th edition of the conference. And we'll have more information for that in the article in the show notes that you can check out. But please enjoy our conversation on this week's Who the Folk podcast. Leah Persky, welcome to the Who the Folk podcast. Thanks for uh, joining us this week. Thanks for having me. And thanks for having me in the fantastic new JFCS building. Yes, you are welcome. Uh, here. So coming up this week is the annual Jewish Mental Health Conference First of all, am I calling it? Is that the correct title, or is that just bad shorthand?
1: And mental health education conference. Okay, that's the that's the proper name. Yeah,
0: sounds a lot nicer than whatever <laughs> I managed to spit out. Um, so this year's theme is hope, humor, and healing: finding light in dark places. Is the does the theme come out of who the keynote speaker is? Is that sort of how it's put together?
1: Yeah, so there are a few staff here that have been working on this in conjunction with a lot of other people in the community. But yeah, through the keynote speaker they have, and also just the feeling of kind of the, the spirit of the times and just the challenges and the things that people are dealing with now. Mm-hmm. I thought this would be a good good type of way to focus the conference this year.
0: As part of the conference this year, there's which is amazing to me going through it, there's 28 individual workshops. Yes to go along with the keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're uh, presenting one of them, is that yes, correct?
1: I'm doing one of
0: them. And as, as the father of a 13-year-old girl, it's mm-hmm. a very interesting one to me. It's teen girls and social media finding a balance. Why is this area of particular interest to you?
1: Well, I have many years of experience working on gender issues from political science standpoint and in higher ed as well. So I have my PhD in political science And I didn't start out doing a lot of work on gender, but I realized as I started to go through my studies and my program that there's so much out there on this topic and there's so much more that needs to be done in terms of understanding how society and gender norms interact and then how this influences how people behave and how we all try to fit these certain ideals that are created for us. And um, there's so much really interesting work out there now on social media and how it impacts people in general teens as a subset of that and then how teen boys and teen girls differently use media and have different impacts of it and there's a lot of focus on the negative impacts which does make sense but on the balance like on the other side there are also good things that can come out of it so it's a way to try to understand as a whole the impact it can have and it's not always negative
0: is it hard to sometimes pull out those positives that can come from it? Because a lot, like you said, a lot of emph- emphasis is on the bad things and mm-hmm. the dangers, and understandably,
1: yes. But how
0: do you find those sort of pockets of good that can maybe tell a slightly different story?
1: Yeah, there are there are a lot of examples of teens and especially teen girls coming together and reaching out and making new friendships and partnerships not even just in their community, but halfway across the world, almost like pen pals. you know, today as they were like 30 years ago. I had a pen pal. I remember a pen pal in Argentina, but things where there's more connectivity between people now and people come together and they share issues and it really brings them together and creates more understanding in their community, but also globally. So there's a lot of global to local connections, which I think has a lot of power to transform things in a good way. Um, and there are stories, you know, of, of teens coming together and because there's a cause they care about. And so then because of the Internet, they're able to connect and they're able to raise money or raise raise awareness about these issues. And they wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. So I think it is harder to maybe see those good stories. But if you spend a little bit of time, you'll find them. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned you had a PhD in poli-sci. How did mm-hmm. you come to... JFCS is the Family Life Experience Manager. Um,
1: Family Life Education Education Manager. Manager. Yes, ah, I had the wrong yes. E, Sorry, Experience is part of it. but Yes. yes. <laughs> um. So for the past ten years, I've been in higher ed as a professor at a variety of different institutions. So most recently at University of Denver, okay. um, and I have been doing work teaching political science, international studies, and global health, and with a focus on gender, really, through all of my work in the past. Hmm. And so we moved from Denver to Minneapolis about a year and a half ago, not quite a year and a half ago, because of my husband's work. And I, as much as I love higher ed and found it to be a great place to be for a while, I was also ready for a change. And I just really am so interested in health issues, specifically from that like public health, global health standpoint. There's actually a lot of overlap between the public health content in family life education um, for the community. So just like, for example, a few days ago, I did a Mental Health 101 um, topic, and that's something that I've studied as a global health kind of person in academia and someone that's taught on global health and mental health. So there are a lot of overlaps there, and it's so cool for me to be able to take stuff that I know from the higher ed world and then apply it into a community-based setting and um, meet new people and new environments.
0: Is it nice to not have the pressures of that come with having to be in academia and writing and publishing and tenure track and all all that Mm -hmm. goes with it. Is it nice to not have to worry about that as much?
1: It is. Yeah. It um I mean you can excel and be at the top of your game in academia and that is great. I just always felt like I was struggling to to get to that point. More just internal pressure that I put on myself and having two young children. I felt like um I could keep going, I could do it, but Overall, as a person, it, it was um, kind of a struggle for me. So to be able to work in more of a community setting where there's, I think it's a more holistic kind of view on things and there's more variation in what I do. There's, I feel less pressure, pressure coming from different places. So it, um, I like the change and I, I'm happy to be here and have this opportunity because I'm learning new skills, new content area. Um, so it's great.
0: And it seems like just in talking to you that there's more opportunity to sort of branch out a little bit more and do a lot of different things using your skill set, but taking on different areas of interest.
1: Yeah. And that's something we're working with is like figuring out what does the community need? Mm -hmm. What services should we provide? And then also looking at my predecessor who was here for more than 25 years. And, you know, I worked with her before she retired and just getting a feel for what she did and thinking about how I can try to do some of the things that are still needed that she excelled at. Um, and so I think it is a balance between figuring out, you know, what, what are we good at? What have we done in the past and have worked? And then what does the community need now and how is it changing?
0: Okay. So how did the, for example, the session that you had mm-hmm. last weekend, mm-hmm. how did that sort of come together and, um, And in terms of, like, responsiveness to community needs, what what were they looking for, you know, to come out of that?
1: Well, they had asked us to come and to put something together on mental health, like a Mental Health 101, um, something that anyone could attend in the community that would be an educational experience and to learn about the core issues in terms of what is mental illness, what is mental health, how do we know what the symptoms of mental illness are and what do you do about them? Because at JFCS we have a whole counseling team and, you know, people you know they are seeing patients on a daily basis, so it's a great resource for the community that way. Um, and so I was able to come with one of my coworkers and we could give, I think, a really helpful presentation that the community needed because they asked us to, like this is specifically what they needed, so it was cool to be able to respond to that.
0: What have you found has been the biggest adjustment for you in this job coming out of academia?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, um, that's a good question. and um I think something that's really been a nice change and a nice adjustment mm. is that there's always people around people care how you are, they ask you lots of questions um, and as a professor coming from you know where I was before, which was a great place, it's just you're you're more off you're an independent person doing. Yeah what you needed to do all the time. So I was often, you know, I was the lone person, like, in my office. I didn't see my colleagues that often. Students would come and see me if they needed me. But I didn't have, I think, a really caring community, which I feel here at JFCS is great to have. You know, there's people around all the time. There's a lot of collaboration. There's lots of talking about how everyone's doing. And I think that creates a really nice kind of foundation for for doing work and feeling like... You know, you are seen, you are valued, and and people care about you.
0: So, well, that's nice. And how about your adjustment to the Twin Cities? Had you been here before you had moved here?
1: Yeah, I had been here. So my brother and uh, my sister in law live here. Oh, okay.
0: Um,
1: and they've lived here for I think about four or five years. So we've been here visiting. We've hung out with them. Um, and so yeah, I feel like I'm still adjusting though. Overall, um, it's great like the kids love it. Very family friendly. Schools are great. Just getting used to the weather and missing the sun from Denver. Um so I mean, it is an adjustment, but overall it's been um it's been good. We've met some great people mm-hmm. and we love our neighborhood. So, so it's good. As you
0: mentioned, you you know, taking the position for somebody who had been here for so long mm-hmm. for retiring. How do you try to inject, you know, maybe some new ideas or new ways of thinking without, you know, with a, without stepping too much on the legacy mm-hmm. that she had built?
1: Yeah, that's um, it's a hard thing to do because um, Barbara, who was my predecessor, just did such amazing work. And her specialties and focus areas are different than mine. Okay. So in a way, it's forced me to be, to kind of, develop who I am as an individual. And, you know, people say, Oh, are you the new Barbara? And I was like, well, not really, you know, I'm, I'm different. I, you know, and I do have such a different background than, than she has that it's almost been like, um, a chance to kind of reinvent this, um, position of family life education manager. And I'm doing things that I know she, you know, she didn't really do in the past because she did things that I'm not going to be able to do now, but I'm still in contact with her and, you know, we chat and talk about different things and she helps me through decisions and, um, you know, her background's in counseling and I don't have a background in counseling, so things like that. So luckily there's great um, staff of therapists here and I can, like, partner with them on things, um, and so that's been helpful. And and just um, meeting with people I've met in the community, I can draw on my education Experience and say, you know, what classes are you teaching? What what challenges are you having with the classes you're teaching? Let me help you try to craft a more effective class. And using that lens of higher ed has actually come in handy several times already. That's so, cool.
0: yeah. What does the stigma around mental health mean for people in terms of seeking treatment? Um,
1: the stigma that exists around mental health issues uh-huh. causes people to wait oftentimes up to ten years to receive the services that they need for their mental health. Um, and this, there's a movement to try to treat mental illness like a physical illness, and that would normalize it. And that's not how it's currently treated now. So mental illness is oftentimes thought of like, oh, that person's weak, or you know, they just need to pull themselves up and get out of bed. Um, and these are real illnesses. You know, to say that to someone is really demeaning to that person that's suffering. And so there's this like, I think there's a movement to. To talk about what does stigma look like, how do people experience it, and then how does that impact that individual, but also their family, their community, um,
0: and potentially harmful too. Oh, very okay,
1: yes. Mm-hmm. I
0: mean, I would think that would cause. I mean, not being a therapist or trained in mental health, it feels like that would sort of trigger a setback.
1: Oh, definitely, most definitely, and and then people thinking like, "What's wrong with me?" You know, I. And minimizing their own symptoms and their own, you know, feelings and struggles that they're having. And the thing about mental illness is it's diagnosable and it's treatable and it impacts one out of four people in the United States today.
0: Do you think it's always been there, like, the, especially on like, the one out of four statistic, mm-hmm. do you think that it's always been there and people are just now more willing to talk openly about it? Or do you think there is something that has brought it on and more prevalence in you recent know, years?
1: I think that's a really good question, and I don't necessarily have a very clear answer. On the one hand, data from like the World Health Organization and from NAMI demonstrates that mental health illness is on the increase, especially in certain subsets of the population, like teenagers, yeah. um, and that it's increased significantly over the past 20 years. Um, and there is also evidence that says that more adults in the United States are also suffering from mental illness today than they were 20 years ago. But at the same time, it may be that it's somewhat more normalized people are coming forward and they're getting the help that they need. Um but I think that's only part of the picture. Um so new forces like social media or the increasingly partisan political um atmosphere that we're dealing with today, all of those things really impact how people feel and also Discrimination levels of discrimination against minorities, against women, um, you know this rise of hate crimes. All of this impacts our health, and to think that our mental health and to think it doesn't, um, you know, is is a little bit of a bubble. So it's hard to know really exactly how much it's increased, but I think it has.
0: So given the um, again with the conference now, this is the 18th year of it. Is the is it that the Jewish community of the Twin Cities is ahead of the curve in terms of its willingness to talk about it, or is it just a they perceived it to be an issue early on and have been just more open?
1: Well, if you look back to like the founding of psychology and therapy, there's a lot of really prominent Jews that started the field, yeah. um, going back to Freud. So um, Jews have always been very active in sort of these realms as professionals and they've also I think that's also brought it into the Jewish community a little bit more. So Jews are probably a little bit more willing to talk about these things, but they're not necessarily more willing to talk about if they've received treatment or if someone there in their family might need treatment. So maybe it's something that's discussed, but the actual treatment is done in a more private way. So that doesn't necessarily get over the stigma that that exists. So that stigma exists for not just the person that's suffering from the illness, but also their family as well. So it's especially true with kids if they're suffering from mental illness.
0: What are some, you know, warning signs or things that people could look for, um, I suppose, particularly in kids, in light of the fact that you're doing this toxic targeting more in the teen Mm -hmm. girl set, but also at large, what are things people can look for if they're listening to this and maybe need help recognizing some of those signs?
1: Yeah. So there are a variety of symptoms that you can look for. And the thing to keep in mind though, is that none of these symptoms by itself means that someone actually has a mental illness. It's more, the thing that you need to look for is a change in baseline behavior. So if you know someone well and you know their habits, you know their interests, you know you know their sleep patterns, that kind of thing, and then they start to deviate significantly from that, that's when you, as someone, as part of you know, their loved one or their friend, would say, okay, I think something's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that deviation from the norm, that's really the key thing to keep in mind. So things like impulsive behavior, um, insomnia, or sleeping a whole lot more than they would normally, um, people that are taking risks, more than they would have before, Um, people that are sweaty or nervous-seeming, those are all potential risk of some sort of, or symptoms of a mental illness, Um, being detached and being not interested in things that they normally have shown interest in, Um, talking a lot about um, some grandiose plans that seem totally out of touch with reality. That could be another potential um, thing or sign to look for. Um, And if someone does bring up talks or talks about contemplating suicide or plans for suicide, obviously that would be a red flag to look for. Um, and sometimes people will talk about it, sometimes they won't, but if they do, that's obviously a warning sign to say, you know, take that next next step and say, okay, I'm here for you. How are you doing? Um, what can I do? You know, can I drive you to, to go see someone? Um, let's talk about this and, and really make steps to to be there for that person.
0: Okay that's cool those are good tips yeah good to know those things Mm
1: -hmm. i think another kind of layer of that is that about close to 60 percent of americans that need mental health support services don't get them and there's a variety of reasons for that part of it is economic Mm -hmm. Um, part of it has to do with health insurance part of it has to do with hard time finding a provider, you know, that's close to them and convenient for them. Um so I think this is something that varies significantly if you look over different subsets of the population by like, you know, economics or okay. um, you know, urban to rural, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um so it's I think there's positive movement, but it's still like for a lot of people it's out of reach to get those services that they really
0: do need. Yeah. So. And obviously something like the con- it's not therapy, but at least it opens the conversation and there's the like I said, 28 different yeah. sessions that address, I would have to think, so many of the topics and things that are out there.
1: And many of the presenters are therapists or practitioners themselves, right. so that's great. And I know in the past, and I think they'll probably do that the same thing this year, is they've had um, therapists kind of on, on call there. Mm-hmm. So if an individual is at the conference and they're experiencing some sort of triggering event or they need to talk to someone, they can go in and talk oh, to great. Um, the therapists that are there and just, you know, there for that purpose specifically. And I think there are a few, in addition to mine, I think there's one or two other sessions that focus on specifically teens and anxiety and that type of thing. So um, there are a few within that.
0: Well, Awesome. Oh, last couple questions for a favorite Jewish holiday.
1: My favorite Jewish holiday? I have to say Hanukkah. I have such lovely memories of just being a kid and hanging out with my extended family in the Chicago area and making latkes and and just being around together. And um so I try to recreate that for my my kids here.
0: And uh favorite Jewish food?
1: Um well, latkes and mm-hmm. I'm a vegetarian but matzo ball soup. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> yes. Matzo balls with a with, with like a vegetable in a vegetable soup then? Is that um, how
1: you I, do it? Yes, but my, you know, of course, the memory of, like, your grandmother's matzo ball soup is one thing. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I make it myself. It's not quite the same, though.
0: <laughs> no, I can understand that. Yeah. Well, well Leah, thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us this week, and... Um... I think the whole community is excited about the conference this year. It yeah. is every year. It's a big deal. So
1: Yeah, I think there's more than 400 people registered already, and you can still come, and it's free.
0: So Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah,
1: thank you. Stigma in the community. Yeah. Um, but,
0: and that's not just the Jewish community. You know, it's every... Thanks again to Leah for joining us. Don't forget about the Mental Health Education Conference, sponsored by the Twin Cities Jewish Community coming up on October 21st. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you have, please rate and review the show. It helps others to find it. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next week.